Judges chapter 16. Um, if you could turn with me in your Bibles, if you have pew Bibles there, if you turn to Judges chapter 16, and I'm going to start reading at verse 4. Judges chapter 16 and verse 4. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him and we may bind him to humble him and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. And then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. And then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, if you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So, while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, how can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and have you not, you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words, day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. 
Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees. She called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. Samson, how many of us remember very much about Samson? I can remember back to my uh, teenage days, some years ago now, as you can see, but I can remember back to my teenage days and uh, to the Welsh singer, Tom Jones, who had a top ten hit with his song, Delilah. And uh, with our mono vinyl record player turned up to maximum, I used to hear these words echoing around our suburban English home. My, 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 Delilah. Why, 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 Delilah? Well, it's not exactly Shakespeare, is it? <laughs> but it does sum up, for many of us, this man of Samson, a man, a strong man, with a weakness for loose women, which brings us to the sorry sight of Samson, his head resting in Delilah's lap, his head shaved, and the statement, he did not know that the Lord had left him. Don't you find that a profoundly sad statement? That a man whose life had started with such great expectations that he was going to be God's man for the hour should get to the point where he did not know that the Lord had left him. And yet it had all started out so well. If you go to uh, Judges chapter 13, just uh, three chapters before that passage we just read, here's how it begins. Jun uh, Judges chapter 13 verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now you just think of all of the other stories we have in the Bible of uh, barren women who have visits from the Lord or from the angel of the Lord who announces that that woman is going to conceive and give birth to the child. You just think of some of the children those women had. Isaac, remember last night we were looking at the story of Abraham and Sarah. Isaac, but not just Isaac. We have Jacob and Joseph and Samuel, John the Baptist and here one more also, Samson himself. And of all the characters in the book of Judges, it seems to be Samson who's the one who fits the bill as the obvious candidate for greatness, as the obvious person 
who is going to deliver God's people. None of the other judges were. I mean, first up, we have Deborah. I mean, a woman. That is, I mean, a woman living in a male-dominated, patriarchal society, and yet a woman who commands the troops of Israel on the battlefield. And then, and then we have Ehud, Ehud, the left-handed man, or as the Hebrew puts it literally, restricted in his right hand. In other words, Ehud could quite possibly be a physically handicapped person, and yet somebody who single-handedly delivers Israel from the enemy. And then we meet Gideon. Gideon, a man so timid the first time we meet him, he's hiding from the enemy, cowering in a wine press. And then we meet Jephthah. Jephthah is a social outcast, the son of a prostitute who's kicked out by his own family. And so we could go on. Every one of them, unlikely candidates for greatness, but not Samson. Not Samson. No social outcast was Samson. You just remember some of the parties he went to. Not uh, timid either, tearing apart a lion as if he was swatting a fly. Not handicapped in any limb was Samson. And we read this at the end of chapter 13, chapter 13, verse 24. It's the great news that the woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the young man grew. The young man grew. Now there's an understatement for you. Grew. He grew beyond your wildest dreams, did Samson. And here's no drug-induced Bulgarian weightlifter. This is the real McCoy. Samson was unique. Unique in physique, unique in promise, and unique in one other regard too. He didn't know that the Lord had left him. And how is that possible? How is it possible not to know that the Lord has left you? I mean, if Samson doesn't know that the Lord has left him, it rather suggests, which of course is what biblical stories do, remember? Imagination and suggestion. It suggests that if Samson didn't know that the Lord had left him, that he didn't know when the Lord was with him. And how is that possible? Not to know whether the Lord is with you or has left you. I mean, for example, if I were to break the news to you about a couple of your close friends, we'll call them, call them Jim and Mary, and um, if I were to say to you, um, yeah, uh, you know, have you heard, you know, Jim and Mary broke up, you know, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, Mary just dumped him. Of course, Jim doesn't know. It'd sound rather odd, wouldn't it? 
what kind of relationship could it possibly have been that breaks up, but Jim doesn't know? But Samson didn't know. He didn't know that the Lord had left him. Now, when the angel spoke to Samson's mother, she told her that her son was going to be a Nazarite from the day of his birth. Now, a Nazarite, when you, people would take out a vow to be a Nazarite, and this is where a man or woman would set aside a certain period of their lives which where they would dedicate to the Lord in various ways. And if you were a Nazarite, there were three basic rules that had to be obeyed. And you can find these back in the book of Numbers. Let's go back a few pages to the book of Numbers, chapter 6. And what a Nazarite is supposed to be and do are spelt out there. So, um, Numbers chapter 6, verse 2. When either a man or a woman makes a special vow, the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar made from wine or... Um, he shall drink no vinegar made from wine or strong drink and shall not drink any juice of grapes or eat grapes, fresh or dried. All the days of his separation, he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine, not even the seeds or the skins. So when you're a Nazarite then, you take out a vow to God for a certain length of time. It isn't simply that you don't drink wine. It's not simply that you have to give up the pleasures of alcohol. You have to give up everything and anything connected with grapes, their flesh, their skin, their juice, and their pips. You've got to live a completely grapeless existence. And then the, the second and third conditions. And verse 5 of number 6. Excuse me, I've uh, inadvertently gone back to uh, Judges here, so let me just find Numbers 6. And verse 5. All the days of his vow of separation, no razor shall touch his head until the time is completed for which he separates himself. He shall let the locks of his hair, he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow long. So, should never get his hair cut. And then the third condition, verse 6. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. So then, never go near anything, a dead body, never go near a corpse, and by extension, never go near anything that is unclean either. Now, those are the three conditions then. Not difficult, not onerous uh, responsibilities, you think. Just simply a matter of adopting a Rastafarian hairstyle with, with long locks, not going near grapes or vineyards, not uh, touching an unclean animal, and not attending funerals. So, how does Samson do then? Well, first of all, how about things on the grape front? Well, I think we can see how it probably happened. First of all, maybe just, just touching a grape. And then, you know, just nonchalantly 
flicking a pip that he found just lying around somewhere. And then a sun-dried raisin just, you know, secretly slipped in the side of his mouth. Then a big, black, juicy grape straight from the vine. And from there, he went on to his first glass, became a connoisseur of Chardonnay and Champagne, became an expert on all the great Philistine vintages. You can't keep him away from grapes. You remember that lion he killed? He killed a lion in a vineyard. I wonder what he was doing there. He meets his girlfriend, Delilah, in the Valley of Sorek, the Valley of Grapevines. I wonder what he might have been doing there. He's not supposed to go near a corpse, yet Samson creates corpses, thousands of them throughout Philistia. He's not supposed to go near anything unclean, including a corpse, and yet he creates many of those corpses using the fresh jawbone of an ass, an unclean object. He scrapes honey out of the carcass of that lion, an unclean animal. That's why he won't tell his parents where he got the honey from, because they're pious folk who wouldn't eat it otherwise. A Nazarite indeed. So, by the time we meet our friend Samson, luxuriating under Delilah's massage, there's only one vestige of his Nazarite vow left, his hair. And then, even that goes. And when it does, he didn't know that the Lord had left him. Poor old Samson was uh, one of those people who um, seemed to think that appearances were sufficient, that he could uh, present the illusion of being a Nazarite, but only the bare minimum, his hair. You know, he was supposed to be distinctive, but after a time, it would have been difficult to pick Samson out of, an, out of a Philistine crowd. And as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ, we also are supposed to be distinctive. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 13? He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If what? If you have love for one another. Now, being a real Nazarite um, is, would not have... Uh, been too difficult, but Samson found ways to fake it. And loving our fellow Christians, especially those we disagree with, is difficult to fake. But rather like Samson sometimes, I think, we find faking it easier than actually doing it. So what might we learn from Samson? I'm talking about comparisons and contrasts. What's the point of the story of Samson, I wonder? 
When you read the book of Judges and you look at what Israel is doing in the book of Judges and then you come to the story of Samson, after a little while you begin to see something. And this is what you see when you compare Israel with Samson. So Israel, remember Israel was dedicated to God from the beginning and Samson was dedicated to God from his birth. With Israel, Israel repeatedly breaks its covenant with God and with Samson, Samson repeatedly breaks his Nazarite vow. Just as Israel goes after foreign gods, so Samson goes after foreign women. The wife he has at the beginning of the story is a Philistine. The prostitute he goes with is a Philistine. Delilah is a Philistine. Philistines, every one of them. And just as Israel ends up in the temples of foreign gods, where in the story of Samson do we last see him? We see him in the temple of Dagon. In other words, when we're looking at this, what Israel is, is what Samson is. What Israel does, is what Samson does. And just as Israel never learns from its mistakes, so Samson never leads to learn, never seems to learn from his mistakes. Let me give you another example here of comparing and contrasting. We saw last night that sometimes the Bible will tell us one story and a little later tell us another story which is remarkably like the first and we begin to make connections. So we're going to look now, ah, what happened, just a minute, we, that's right, okay. That was just to add a little variety to the presentation there. In Judges chapter 14, Samson marries his wife, okay? She happens to be a Philistine, but he marries a woman in Judges 14, and then in chapter 16, he meets Delilah. Now, I'm gonna compare what happens in those two chapters. In Judges 14, once Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah, he saw a Philistine woman. In Judges 16, that's the passage we read before, we, before the sermon, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. She's a Philistine. The valley of Sorek is in Philistia. And then, because this is, in chapter 14 is the story where Samson sets a riddle that the Philistines cannot answer. The Philistines come to his wife and they say to her, coax your husband. We want to know the meaning of that riddle. And in Judges 16, what do the Philistines say to Delilah? coax him, get the secret of his strength. Back in chapter 14, his wife says, you do not really love me. Some strategies never change over the years, you notice, as we do. In Judges 16, what does Delilah say? How can you say, I love you? In Judges 14, it says, and because she nagged him. Chapter 16, finally, after she had nagged him with her words. What happened in Judges 14? 
On the seventh day, he told her. Now, careful readers of this story, what do you think is going to happen in Judges 16? What could possibly happen? We almost go looking for it, don't we? And when we do, we find it. He told her his whole secret. And we say to ourselves, doesn't he ever learn? I mean, can't he see the Philistines coming? How thick do you have to be not to know what Delilah's up to when she runs her fingers through his curls and say, oh, tell me, please. I mean, doesn't he know? Well, there's something else he doesn't know. He doesn't know that the Lord has left him. Israel is God's chosen. And so is Samson. Israel is Samson. Samson is Israel. What Samson does is what Israel does. What Israel does is what Samson does. And the, the tragedy of Samson the individual simply underlines the tragedy collectively of Israel as a whole. Samson did not know. What about Israel? More to the point, what about us? What if Samson, I, I haven't seen him here this morning, but, but what if he did turn up to church this morning? How would the conversation go, do you think? I think we'd say, uh, oh, hi, Samson. Yeah, I uh, haven't seen you for a while. Um, how are things going? Have you um, met any more Philistine women? Carried any more gates to the top of the hill? Visited the Gaza Strip, the red light district of the Gaza Strip on your day off? By the way, could you recommend any good vineyards? And then we realize, yeah, that's probably a good idea we didn't appoint him as our youth pastor. Here's a man, Samson, who's less driven by the spirit and driven more by his hormones. And that's why. That's why he didn't know. He didn't know that the Lord had left him because he'd never taken time to know the Lord when he was with him. When Jesus hung in agony on the cross, convulsed, in pain, this is what he said, in, in, he shouted out in Mark chapter 15 and verse 34, well known to us, Mark 15 and verse 34, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But from Samson, not a word, because he hadn't a clue. He didn't know that the Lord had left him because he'd never taken the time to know the Lord when he was with him. So when he left, he didn't know. Not so long ago, a uh, local council, not too far from where I live in England, 
looked through their records of uh, rental payments from their tenants. And they discovered that one of their tenants had not paid rent for three and a half years. So they knew what to do. Go around to this fellow's apartment and demand payment. Well, they found him all right. There was some resistance, but uh, they had to break down the door to get in. But once they were inside, he didn't put up any more resistance because when they walked into his kitchen, all they discovered was his skeleton. He died three and a half years before. But his council landlord didn't know. His next door neighbors, they didn't know. I mean, your tenant, your next door neighbor, lies dead in his kitchen for three and a half years and nobody knows. Now, the neighbors, uh, the neighbors were most upset. I mean, they'd spoken to him quite often, they said. Well, you know, once or twice. And, uh, well, now you mention it, no, we haven't seen him lately. But he seemed like a really nice fellow, you know, really nice kind of fellow, but no, never did take the time to get to know him. So when he died, they didn't know. And Samson didn't know. And doesn't that make you want to weep? I mean, what a wasted life. So what if he'd thrashed around with the fresh jawbone of an ass? What if he'd, so what if he'd transported the gates of Gaza to the top of the hill? So what if he'd devised fiendishly difficult riddles? So what if he'd caught 300 foxes? So what? If he didn't know that the Lord had left him, so what? And yet Samson was extremely busy. Just reading what he did is exhausting. But everything he did amounted to next to nothing because Samson specialized in the spectacular rather than the important, the superficial rather than the profound, flirting with Philistines rather than getting to know the Lord. But it's not just Samson, is it? Because it seems to me there's a desperate need in the, in the world today, but especially a desperate need in the church. And that desperate need is not for more intelligent people or for more educated people. The great need is for more spiritually deep people. People who know when the Lord is with them, and when he is not. People who have Jesus Christ as their Lord and Master and who avoid the tragedy of Samson, who didn't know whether the Lord was with him or had left him. Because there were just more priorities in life. And the higher priorities for Samson were concocting riddles chasing foxes and getting to know the next Philistine beauty. 
but there's no higher priority than getting to know our Lord and to live deep, profound, and spiritually fulfilled lives in his presence. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul sums up what that kind of life might be. In Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the, fa the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.